You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about celiac disease. Joining me is Dr. Arun Singh, who's an attending physician in the General Diagnostic GI Program and co-director of the Center for Celiac Disease at CHOP. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So we're going to start talking about celiac, which is a common immune-mediated inflammatory disease of the small intestine that's caused by sensitivity to dietary gluten and related proteins in genetically predisposed individuals. It's said to affect one in 100 people worldwide. But can we start with an explanation of how celiac disease is different than an allergy to wheat? Absolutely. There's several different disorders to wheat and its key protein, gluten, each having very different types of immune responses. Wheat allergy is an immune response based on the production of a protein called IgE. When produced by an allergic person, this IgE triggers an immediate allergic reaction. So symptoms happen fast, and often you'll see that with hives, wheezing, belly pain, and vomiting. Typically, that requires an emergency treatment plan. Most patients who have a true wheat allergy should carry an EpiPen and appropriate guidance and care should be by an allergist. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, celiac disease is an autoimmune disorder where gluten can lead to immune dysregulation and intestinal damage over time. Celiac disease can affect at any age, and symptoms can present, which vary from classic GI symptoms like abdominal pain, bloating, and constipation, but also neurological symptoms, dermatologic skin rashes, bone disease, anemia, reproductive health issues. These can happen obviously over months to years. And so symptoms may not always be immediate when you have gluten. And so it sometimes can be missed. I think that's a really important distinction, sort of the immediacy of the effects of the gluten, and as well as you mentioned, different pathways. Yeah. But that's a very key point. Yeah, definitely. And we mentioned that this is a disease that occurs in genetically predisposed individuals, and children with a first-degree relative with celiac have a 1 in 10 risk of developing celiac themselves. So how often do you see celiac in patients with no family history? So we actually see that quite a bit. And I think that, you know, we have a a dedicated celiac center at CHOP, and so we see patients that come in for second opinions as well. But, you know, in regards to family history, we'll actually find that a lot of times the first patient to be diagnosed is is at our center. And then as we conduct family screening in first-degree relatives, we'll often find siblings and even parents that end up having celiac disease, and they didn't actually recognize it. They didn't know that they had any sort of more nonspecific symptoms that were leading them down a, a path of not feeling healthy. And do those children often have a family history of other autoimmune conditions? Yes. So there is a strong link between celiac disease and other autoimmune conditions. So Mm -hmm, often you will see families with thyroid disease. You can have liver disease, autoimmune hepatitis. Type 1 diabetes is extremely common. 
So there's a lot of different links with autoimmune disease and celiac disease, which can run in families. And we particularly see those same genes playing a role in those patients who end up having celiac disease, having other common autoimmune comorbidities. In patients, though, who do have a family history of celiac, which comes up a lot in my clinic, parents wonder when and how should we start screening the child for celiac if they're still asymptomatic? Yeah, this is a challenging topic and one that we have an honest discussion about the risk for these families and for their children. Generally, we recommend all first-degree relatives be screened. Uh, And when regards to children, we, we recommend screening as early as three years of age, even if they do not have symptoms. And if they are being tested, sometimes they will need to be tested with not just the celiac serologies, but we will often test their genetics to see if they share the same genes as their parents. And in regards to frequency, we'll test you know, every one to two years often in, in children is how we do it at the CHOP Celiac Center. And I think that's an interesting thing to keep in mind, that the testing is not one and done, that it's ongoing. And my understanding is that because that that is because sometimes the symptoms can be subtle early on. And so let's talk about symptoms a little. I mean, certainly you mentioned some of the GI symptoms, but what are some of the more common ways that kids with celiac may present in primary care? Yeah, so I think that one of the most common things we see in pediatrics is issues with growth. So we'll see kind of drops in their growth percentiles, whether it's weight or height. We'll see sometimes challenges with neurological symptoms where they're having lack of focus. We call it kind of brain fog. Mm. And even headaches can be a a more nonspecific type of symptom that's affected by celiac disease. In the primary care standpoint, if you have, if you're, you know, evaluating for fatigue and you find a patient to be anemic, that's another common presentation that we'll see that can lead down that path as well as those more classic GI symptoms. It tends to be one of those diseases, as you mentioned, that can have a multitude of symptoms that are sometimes nonspecific. So it's one of those things that I always think about adding on a test when the diagnosis is a little bit less certain. So some of those things like failure to thrive and fatigue that you mentioned, which can be hard to find an etiology for, I always consider celiac. Absolutely. I feel that this is why we find these patients being you know, misdiagnosed or the diagnosis being delayed for years. And, and we see this problem both in pediatrics and adults, even though we're all getting better at being more aware of this common autoimmune condition. So if we are concerned about celiac, the first step is sending a tissue transglutaminase IgA antibody and an IgA antibody. So the TTG IgA, which is about 98% sensitive if on a gluten-containing diet. What's the role of the IgA antibody in this? Because I think that confuses some people. And on a second note then, what should we do if our patient has a low IgA? Yeah, so this is a challenge when, you know, there's a number of patients who can have low IgA levels are a selective IgA deficiency. Mm -hmm. And those patients actually who have this immunodeficiency have a higher risk of celiac disease. We know that 6% of celiac disease patients have this IgA deficiency. So the numbers Mm. make it important to think about the screening of using other serologies. Mm. And so when you do come across that patient who had a low IgA level, we do recommend doing some of the IgG-based celiac serologies that are available. So typically, when I have that type of patient, I recommend doing a tissue transglutaminase IgG antibody, Mm -hmm. as well as a deamidated gliadin IgG 
antibody. Mm. So there's two different IgG-based tests that I typically will do in those patients. But with that said, even when we do have these tests being just marginally positive, are patients still having more classic symptoms of celiac disease? We have to strongly consider this uh, on, on our differential because these patients, they often will have that enteropathy when you go towards doing an endoscopy. And then you also mentioned before iron deficiency. So are there other lab findings that could suggest celiac disease? Maybe if we didn't send our celiac panel, but other things that we should see as potential red flags? Yeah. So when we think of younger kids who are more symptomatic, they can have signs of malabsorption. Mm -hmm. So we might see low albumin levels. We might see other vitamin levels that are low, particularly vitamin D and zinc are often concerning if there's a deficiency there. But it really can depend, obviously, on the diet. Sometimes these patients are unknowingly avoiding gluten because they have pain or discomfort from it. And so they might be losing some of the common B-complex vitamins that we need in our diet. Mm. But typically, I will check vitamin D levels, zinc level, and albumin level if there is any concerns there. And once a patient has labs indicative of celiac, I typically refer to GI. However, I've had patients who said that they would rather just do a gluten-free diet and avoid getting a biopsy. So can you explain the role of biopsy in making the diagnosis? Yeah. So in North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, we recommend that an endoscopy and biopsy is essential for diagnosis of celiac disease. This is a, a lifelong condition. So I think even though our serology testing that we have is fairly accurate, mm -hmm. we want to not put our children on such a challenging and cumbersome diet. And so in doing so, we think that the endoscopy is really important. It helps us not only confirm that diagnosis, but it also can identify other causes of pain or discomfort. So we can look for other associated GI conditions. Sometimes our kids will have gastritis or an H. pylori infection. There's a, a higher risk of eosinophilic esophagitis in children who have celiac disease. So doing the endoscopy has value there as well. Mm -hmm. And then finally, I think that knowing the severity of your disease and being able to classify that you have biopsy-proven disease may be helpful in the future as more medications and drugs come down the pipeline that might be available to our celiac patients. Interesting. That's great advice. That's good for us to know when we're referring our patients so we can understand the importance of it. When we're following these patients in clinic, what are some of the things we should be monitoring on an ongoing basis? So we recommend that in children who have celiac disease and, you know, have this has been confirmed, that they get initially important teaching. And that's often with working with our dietitians. We recommend a dietitian evaluation and follow-up yearly. I think things change as you have younger kids, the parents are more involved in overseeing what they're eating. Mm -hmm. But as they get into adolescence, those teenagers are going out with friends, going out to restaurants. So having a dietitian involved and being active in their care is important you know, yearly. Other tests that we do recommend in doing so is those celiac serologies. We use them for screening, but we also use them at this time as our marker that a patient is adhering to the diet. And so we recommend that same TTG, that tissue transglutaminase IgA antibody, to be tested 
annually, even our patients. In regards to other key tests that we often will do at our celiac center, we do, again, know that increased risk of autoimmune disease. So we'll screen our patients annually for thyroid disorders. So we'll check a TSH level as well as liver function tests to make sure that there's not a concern that a patient might be developing hepatitis or particularly autoimmune hepatitis. So there's those tests in addition to vitamin levels are what we are checking regularly. And if you have more concern about weight and nutrition, that consultation with the dietitian was can help guide further blood work as needed. Great. So annual nutrition, celiac panel, vitamin levels, thyroid, liver function. I think that's what I heard from you, right? Yes. And I did mention the increased risk of autoimmune comorbidities. And we see type 1 diabetes Mm. a fair amount. I would say most of the time, children have type 1 diabetes and develop celiac disease over time. But we have had a number of kids who have had that in the Mm -hmm. other direction where they develop type 1 diabetes after their celiac disease diagnosis. Mm. So, you know, I do want to be mindful of that as we check, you know, their electrolytes and glucose levels. And we will want at least one time, if there's any concern, do even a hemoglobin A1C. But that's really case dependent. And then in primary care, we're doing a lot of childhood immunizations and patients with celiac should receive their routine childhood immunizations. However, there's some special considerations in terms of hepatitis B and pneumococcus. Can you tell us about that? So we do find that there's a number of patients who with celiac disease have hyposplenism. And with that lack of splenic function, they may be more at risk for certain types of infections. So the recommendation is there to get the pneumococcal vaccine. Mm -hmm. In regards to the hepatitis B vaccine issue, in our celiac disease patients, we've found that there's a lot more non-responders and patients who may have gotten vaccinated in infancy and childhood and no longer appear to have adequate protection. And so, again, knowing that there's an increased risk of liver disease in celiac patients and wanting to protect them from you know, hepatitis B, we do test for the antibody to see if they have that protection. And we do recommend a booster vaccine series if it's warranted. Great. So checking the hepatitis B titers and then re-immunizing if necessary and doing the 23-valent pneumococcal vaccine. So that's good for us to keep in mind. The first patient that I had with celiac reminded me how little I actually know about nutrition. Maintaining a strict gluten-free diet can be really tricky, as you mentioned. So how important is the dietitian role in your team? Yeah, I think that they're absolutely essential. We have a phenomenal group of dietitians who are passionate about caring for families and patients for celiac disease. They have such great Mm -hmm. practical tips, you know, when it comes to new companies that are available with good sources of pizza and bread and such. And so this is, again, a very cumbersome diet. Mm -hmm. And it's not something where you can just, you know, go gluten light or make a few changes in your lifestyle. So as a family, often you need that support. And so our dietitians are crucial there. And I think that even as, as, uh, you know, a physician who works very closely with our celiac families, we just don't have that training and practical expertise that our dietitians can offer. So they're absolutely essential. Yeah, that's another reason that I always refer to GI for these families. And as you mentioned, it's something that's constantly evolving as new products are created and 
there are new options for families. So it's good to have them staying up to date on that for us. Yeah. So we've covered a lot, and this is a huge topic that we could talk about even more. But what's the biggest takeaway that you want primary care pediatricians to know about celiac? Well, I think that there was two things I wanted to mention. One is when we talk about initially having that awareness of celiac disease on your differential. And if you are able to do the screening and find a positive screening test, you know, I certainly recommend referring to a gastroenterologist so that, you know, the family can have a proper discussion about the importance of endoscopy and getting that treatment and dietary plan in the proper order of the mm-hmm. And so the other aspect that we see as our patients who have celiac disease and move on in managing their diet year in and year out is just being aware that given that this is a challenging condition, that even though there is a strict diet that is the primary treatment and no medications are are needed, which sounds great in theory, it's really, really hard. Mm -hmm. And so families can see the stress, children can develop anxiety and restrictive eating habits. And so you just want to be mindful of that as you care for your patients in case they might benefit from talking to, you know, psychologists or just having a little bit more time to identify what the challenges are. That's a a great point. And I think that sometimes, like you mentioned, because it is something that can be diet controlled, we may minimize what we think the seriousness of it is, but keeping in mind that impact on the family can still be quite significant. And certainly, like you said, keeping in mind the multidisciplinary approach to the ongoing treatment of this disease. So we thank you and your team at CHOP for providing care and consultation in these services. And we know that we can reach out to you and refer patients whenever we have need or concern. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us, Katie. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. 